0: Well, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we get together here tonight to worship you. Thank you for the musicians using their gifts and their talents to lead us in worship to you. I think uh, I I pray that uh, it was a joyful noise to you and that it blessed you as we sang. I pray that it refreshes us. I ask now as we go to your word that you would instruct us and give us wisdom as we look at the problem. Of injustice, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So let's uh, let's start off with, I think, something every one of us agrees on. In fact, I know we all agree on it. Uh, In this world, things are not fair, and we all know it. We all experience it to some degree or another. What almost nobody seems to agree on is how to handle injustice when it comes our way. Uh, how to handle the unfairness of the world around us. There seems to be competing narratives going on in, uh, in our culture right now when it comes to dealing with unfairness and, and challenges that way. Um, that said, there are, I think, two pretty dominant ideas that get a lot of attention right now that tend to be adhered to by many about how to best handle uh the issue of injustice uh one side one side says that we need to try the best we can to alleviate the injustice of our world by equaling the outcomes or maybe it might be better said this way that the the sense from this side of the equation is Okay, fine, we may affirm in this country that everyone is born equal. We may affirm that on paper, but not everyone is born with an equal chance. Someone is born in abject poverty while another person is born in wealth, and so it's much more likely that that person born in wealth is going to have success in life, whereas the person born in poverty is not, and so that's not fair. That's, it, it would be seen by this side as unjust not just. And so the goal then is to try and find ways to equal out that injustice through, uh, usually through various uh, programs installed or instilled by the government and other maybe social uh, activist groups. But the goal there is to try and equal out the scales. Because they're sensing unfairness, injustice. And then on the other side of the coin, there are people that simply say, well, no, I mean, here's the reality. The world is merit-based. It's all about earning your way through this world, earning your way to the top or as far as you can go. We live in a meritocracy, and therefore you do good, you work hard, and eventually you'll get ahead. So those are the two big sort of competing narratives that you see argued for all the time in how to deal with injustice, lack of equality, unfairness in our culture. Now, this is I admittedly a vast oversimplification of the issues, but I'm just setting that up today because essentially the preacher in our passage is really trying to deal with the problem of injustice in our world. That's the theme of the passage, injustice and oppression. And through the passage, he's going to discuss, number one, the reasons for injustice in our world and unfairness. Number two, the results of injustice and unfairness. And number three, the answer that God gives to injustice. So those are the three things we're going to be talking about tonight. First of all, the reasons for injustice. What do we see? The preacher says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, he could be talking about both the court system and the church at that time, or the, uh, for that matter, Judaism at the time, because he differentiates between place of justice and place of righteousness, although I don't think that there's as much hay to that as some others might suggest. Point is, he sees in the place of justice wickedness. We skip on down to chapter four, verse one. He continues, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors. Well, the, uh, on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So what do we see? Preacher looks around at the world and laments because of the abuse of power he sees throughout this world. Indeed, at the time when the preacher was writing, the vast majority of people on planet Earth lived in terrible poverty. Most work was done by enslavement. And there were, I mean, no rights to speak of in the society. I mean, the king and the nobleman had all the power And truth is that those systems of government have changed and things have improved in many areas of life. We still see oppression and injustice all around today. It's not something foreign to us, especially in impoverished countries. I can't help but think of the picture I saw a few weeks ago to illustrate the injustice that can be found in power. Then the president of Venezuela a few weeks ago, eating at salt bay's restaurant i think it was in turkey i don't know if you guys know who salt bay is but he's the guy who does the really you know that was my bad impression of the dude who sprinkles salt on meat um, but he was sitting there in his while well, his country is i mean on the brink of starvation and the country is is absolutely struggling to get by only the powerful only those connected to power really are doing well everybody else is in is famished right now in that country It's a real struggle in Venezuela, it's a crisis, and here he is, the president of that country, eating some of the best meat you could find in the world and dancing the night away, as the video showed. Now, now we don't have exact data on this, but according to some in the United States Senate, uh, it is estimated that 70% of foreign aid sent to countries in needs ends up in the pockets of a few bureaucratic powerful families. For example, in a report last year, the Washington Post detailed South Sudan's food crisis. The author of the piece says, there are now 400 crises across the Middle East and Africa in what is emerging as the greatest humanitarian disaster since World War II, according to the United Nations. In each place, Nigeria, Somalia, Yemen, and South Sudan Aid workers are being blocked from reaching the needy, in some cases by insurgents, in others by soldiers or bureaucratic restrictions. Twenty million people across four countries could starve if they don't quickly get help, according to the United Nations. The author goes on to point out that it's almost entirely because of human human beings not allowing the food aid to get to those who need it. So what are corruption and oppression, but just another way of describing what dwells in every single human heart, namely sin. This is what you're seeing. It is sin that leads to the oppression of others, and it is sin that leads us to corruption, and nobody is immune. And so, Lord Acton famously says power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've no doubt heard the phrase before. So that's The reasons for injustice, at least from the preacher's perspective, is you have people in the place of justice not acting justly and therefore causing the oppression of many. But this relates to the results of injustice. He says it basically comes down to two results, degradation and despair. First, in regard to degradation, he writes in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Now, the the point that the preacher is making is that the, the more injustice is experienced, the the more low a person is made to feel so that they feel as if they're just one more beast in the world. They're just like an animal. They're being treated like such. They feel degraded. Thus he writes in chapter 4, verse 2, I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both is he who is not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So the point the author is making is that when one experiences so much injustice and oppression, eventually it leads them to wishing they never existed. It leads them to wishing that life never happened. Indeed, we can see other instances of this kind of talk in places like the book of Job, where Job says, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May not light shine upon it. And we know why he said it. Because Job was facing constant injustice. He was getting stuff for no apparent reason. All these terrible things were happening to him. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, man, I just I wish... I wish I was never born. You ever felt like just giving up? Man, I just wish I I could die. That's what the preacher says happens as a result of injustice. There's a breaking point. There's a point at which people give up. I can't help but think of a scene from the movie uh, Braveheart right after the corrupt and unjust king edward makes a rule that whenever anyone gets married in scotland one of king edward's nobles gets to sleep with the new wife on the first night of their marriage and in this one scene a nobleman shows up at the wedding to take this new bride for the night and initially her husband and his friends try to fight this nobleman off and they try to because they obviously this is a horrible injustice, this woman being taken to be with this man on the first night of her marriage instead of with her husband. I mean, how terrible does it get? But then in the scene, the wife realizes that there's nothing good that will come out of this, that what will end up happening is her husband will just end up killed and his friends will end up killed and she's going to end up being raped anyway. And so she quietly puts everybody back to calm Including her husband, and says, "Let me go." And as she goes with this nobleman, she has this look of pure defeat. She's just given it up, given up at this injustice that she sees in her world. And yet, it's it's at the point when we realize that the injustice of this world is too much to take that it's too much for us to to fix That it's not going to be easy and that we're not going to be able to right all the wrongs in this world. That even if we are called to fight against the wrong and fight against injustice, which Christians are, to realize that still it's going to be with us. Jesus told us as much that we're going to have inequality, that we're going to have poverty in this world, that we're going to have struggle, that we're going to have injustice. He said as much. He predicted as much. It's when we recognize that that reality is going to be there and that we can only do so much that we just might be ready to hear God's answer to the injustice of this world. And the first thing we see in the text, the preacher says, he notes, is God will judge. God will judge. The preacher says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. There's a certain level of comfort in that, isn't there? When you think about the injustice perpetrated on the world, and you think about the really bad guys in the world, you know, the Hitlers and the Stalins, you know, the name, the normal list of characters, and you go, yes, I want to see judgment. I want to see the evil that has been perpetrated judged. Heck, we don't even have to go to the Hitler's or Stalin's. I mean, if you've ever faced anything unjust in your life, not nearly to that level, there's a sense of comfort that can come from knowing that somebody will be judged. I'll just tell you a story from my own life. About a year ago, I was doing what we have to do if we own a car here in New York City. I was sitting in my car, I think it was Monday and Thursday this week, or sometimes it's Tuesday and Friday, from 11.30 to 1 p.m. Why was I sitting in my car? I was waiting for the street sweeper to go by. So when the street sweeper comes by, everybody moves their car over, and as soon as the street sweeper goes by, everybody quickly moves their car back, keeping their space for another few days instead of having to look for an hour for another space that just might happen to open up by the grace of God. So this is what everybody does. Everybody does this. They wait. The street sweeper goes by. They go back in. Normal day. I wait, street sweeper goes by, pull out, go back in, and then I see up ahead of me, just a few cars ahead of me, this girl is about to pull back into her space, young woman, maybe 20, 21, and this dude out of nowhere <laughs> squeezes in and takes her space. And I, I can see her face. She just looks like, uh, ah, like, I, I, ah, I don't know what to do. I, and I, I'm telling you. I don't know if it was like righteous dad anger. I don't know what happened. I, w- I was indignant. I'm like, this dude is not getting away with that. So I walked up to his car, and I tried to keep it as calm as I could. I said, hey, hey, man, I mean, she's been waiting here for an hour and a half the whole time. I've seen her. This is her parking spot. Come on, it's not cool. Can you, can you just move and try to find another spot? And he looks at me and goes, nope. Now I'm, I'm feeling the blood rise, and my chest is like... And they said, hey, come on, come on, don't, don't, don't be a jerk. Don't be like that. I mean, this is a young lady here. She could be your daughter. I mean, just think, if your daughter was there, I mean, what's she going to do now? I mean, you're going to make her go out and look for another spot? And the guy looks at me and says, "Uh, hey, too bad. This is New York City. And now I'm like, you know, put up your dukes. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. To go at it, but I can't. I'm a pastor. I can't do that. So I did a very pastoral thing. I said, All right, man, that's fine. That's your spot. That's your spot. You get to keep the spot. You get to look at that young lady's face, and someday you're going to face God and you'll have to deal with the judgment that comes because of it. <laughs> that's exactly what I said to him. And of course, you can imagine the look on his face. He looked like, What? A little shocked. And thankfully, moments later, some other guy, out of the kindness of his heart, gave up his face, and she was able to take it. But you know, i got to say, at the moment, it felt so good to be able to pull that card out on that dude. You are going to face the judge, and he's going to get you for it. He's going to get you for your act of injustice. But you know what the problem with that approach is, right? I mean, you know I don't have to tell you, the problem is that every one of us, to some degree or another, if we're honest, has participated in injustice in some way in our lives. And that means if we were to stand before the bar of God's justice ourselves... Not a single one of us would be deemed just enough to reach that bar. So in order for us to pin our hopes on a future judgment that, yes, indeed, is coming, we have to be sure that when we arrive there, we can somehow be declared righteous and just ourselves. We have to have some assurance that that can happen. And that's why more than rejoicing at the coming judgment we ought to rejoice at the past judgment that was born on the cross. Here's what I mean. In order for us to have hope in the midst of this unjust world, we must look to the time where God says he has already judged the wickedness of the world, and that time was on the cross of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. The one innocent person absorbs the punishment for all the guilty. There he, the perfect man, absorbs the injustice of the entire world. There he exchanges his righteousness with the world's unrighteousness so that sinners who deserve judgment can be declared just in his sight. Even guys that steal nice young ladies' parking spots. Yes, it's true. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Calvary. Uh, If you haven't, I'd recommend it. It's it's pretty rough. It's pretty raw. Uh, But it's a wonderful story about a middle-aged priest who at the beginning of the movie hears a confession from someone who tells him, in fact, in this confession that in one week's time, he's going to kill this priest. And the reason he gives for telling the priest he's going to kill him is because he says, you know, I was molested when I was a child, very young age, seven years old. And I suppose I, I could go out and find a priest who... Has done the same sorts of things. I mean, the priest who did that to me is already dead and gone. But I could find a priest who who did all those sorts of things. And you know what? Uh, That might make a statement, but you know what would make even more of a statement? Is if I kill a good priest. Is if I kill an innocent man. And that's why I've chosen you, Father. Because I know you're a good priest. You're going to atone for the sins that were committed against me. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ says he does. He atones for the sins that we've committed against them and they've committed against us. So we go back to the beginning in which we discuss the two prominent ways of handling injustice in our world. The one says we have to make everyone equal as best as possible. The other says it should be based on merit. The cross says both are true. Through Jesus Christ, both are true. Here's what I mean. At the cross, because we are all sinners... We are indeed declared completely and totally equal in the sight of God. As the old saying goes, the ground is most level at the foot of the cross. It is completely and utterly equal. No one stands on higher or lower ground at that place. No favoritism is given whatsoever. Jesus dies for the sins of the entire world right there. And yet, on the other hand, the cross also tells us that the only people who will see God and be forgiven are those who have merited His favor. However, it is not our merit that the cross gives us, but Jesus' is. And the fact is, we are saved by works, just not our own, His So we stand there. Equal, but filled to the brim with merit by the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we grasp this reality, well, then we just may be able to handle the injustice perpetrated against us with a little more strength We just might be able to find the strength to fight against the injustice of others in a way that shows that we still love and have compassion for them. Because as we accept the fact that all of us are equal before God, it will give us the humility to remember that those who perpetrate injustice aren't all that different than us. And yet because we have been recipients of the grace of God that declares us favor, we, in turn, can work to favor all those around us who maybe haven't been favored ever before. To elevate them, as the Apostle Paul, to consider others better than ourselves. Why? Because that's the way Jesus treats us. He battled me for a word of prayer. Father, there is nothing that I can think of more that I have distaste for than injustice. There's nothing that I want to see alleviated more. But before I go pointing out all the ways the world has failed me in this regard, I stand here confessing to you my own injustice, my own unrighteousness. And I pray that you would move in each person's heart here to do the same tonight. To get real about it. Even in the smallest ways, each one of us looks for ways to get ahead. Help us instead to see our equality with our fellow man. And yet to see the great love with which we're loved because of the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.